You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there, the Gangland Wire. I'm back here in the studio. I have on the Zoom call for you guys on YouTube, uh, Jake Halpern. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about Jake and, and what he means. Now, I know he's this is not uh, Jimmy Fradiano we got on here or uh, a mob guy, but uh, he's pretty important mob historian, in my opinion. I first He has a podcast. He's a podcast host. And, and as you know by now, I have promoted this podcast a little bit. And, and I personally will promote this podcast. I personally would recommend that you listen to this called Deep Cover Mobland. And, and they're in their second season. The first season was about a, an FBI agent named Ned Timmons, who started out kind of working undercover on a, uh, a, a motorcycle gang and just, you know, just doing small deals as all the all big investigations start out with was a small deal. And, and he ended up uh, taking in some really big time, huge marijuana distributors and then they actually helped in taking down manuel noriega and, and they, re they really do a good job it's a first class it's, it's brought to you by pushkin industries which is if you know about malcolm gladwell it's he has a like a podcast network i think so welcome jake it's a it's really a pleasure for me and an honor to have you on my show oh thanks for having me gary so you guys got hold of me and wanted uh, offered to sh exchange promos for the podcast, and you had this new one coming up, and I, and I was I was very happy to do that. I I may have even already said something about your show. I don't know. Sometimes I'll mention to my guys that uh, about some podcasts that I like, and I, I think they would like too, because I know nobody listens to just one podcast. I sure don't. I don't think anybody does. Uh, uh, so. And I really liked that first one y'all did. And, uh, and then when I was contacted by your people, uh, why, you know, I was, uh, I'm really looking forward to doing this. And especially it's a subject near and dear to my heart, and that's a Chicago outfit. I've done a lot of stories on the outfit. I've got a lot of good friends up there, both uh, in the mob and, and uh, mob historians uh, in Chicago. So, uh, uh, and, and Bob Cooley, <laughs> I tell you what, this, folks, this is a heck of a story. Uh, Jake, you know, I talked to Bob one day on the telephone about a year ago. Somehow I found a phone number on him or I got him passed a message to him to call me. And, <laughs> and he kind of talked, not talked nonstop for about an hour. And, and, uh, in the end, he said he, yeah, he was more looking for an agent. He was, I think he was looking to, for a movie deal for his, his, uh, uh, book, I believe, but. Uh, you know, and I, and I, you know, I understand the guy got to make some money. So, uh, but you guys were able to get him and, and it, it's a, it's a great show of the, uh, the preliminary shows that you have sent me already. And by the time this is released, you guys will be able to tune into it. So, so Jake, I guess, how did you, you know, what a little bit, what's a little bit about your history? Yeah. Do you want, you want to talk just, you want me to tell you about this, how I came into the season or just say a little bit about myself and Oh yeah. yeah. You know, a couple of sentences about yourself. Guys would like to know about you. Yeah. Um, so I'm not like, I, I've, I've definitely done some true crime stories. I'm not, that's not my only yeah. thing. Uh, I'm kind of a Jack of all trades. You know, for many years, I've just been a freelancer. So whoever's going to pay me, I'm going <laughs> to do the work. Um, but I, but true crime has a special place in my heart. I, I did, before this, I did a story about a guy who robbed uh, a museum in Paris worth about $50 million worth of mm. paintings. 
he was in prison, actually. They caught him, but they never found the, the paintings. And I was his pen pal for about a year. And he kept on hinting that he might know where the paintings were. <laughs> um, and he was like the guy that you described before. He would have gotten away with it, but he was yeah. so pleased with what he had done. He couldn't help but, <laughs> but tell folks. So I've always been interested in uh, at least a bit in, uh, you know, in, in true crime. And so yeah. um, it, it led me kind of to the podcast. And I can tell you how I, how I got into this one, if, if you want. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, was Ned Simmons the, the FBI agent? Was that you know? Did, did who put that all together? I guess would be what what I think my guys would find interesting. Yeah. So that was that was kind of odd. What happened? What happened in that case? Every once in a while, I will get a a note from someone in Hollywood that says, "You know, have you ever thought about writing about this?" Usually, yeah. what they want is me to write some sort of nonfiction version, so they can then do a movie or yeah. a TV show. I'm always kind of skeptical because I don't want to just be a, an avenue for some, you know, fat yeah. cats to, to make a movie. But this guy sent me a manuscript that he claimed was a true story that he'd gotten hold of. It was clearly unpublished. Yeah. It didn't even have a cover page. It literally just started with the story of this guy who was an FBI agent who was going undercover in a motorcycle gang. And the story was crazy. It was about... He goes undercover in a motorcycle gang, infiltrates a drug smuggling ring, spends about five years undercover, works his way up this operation to the top until it implicates Manuel Noriega, the president of Panama, who's a CIA operative. <laughs> anyway, it was this crazy story. And I called the guy back and I said, this is a great story, but this is this true? Yeah. Like, and he said, yes. He says, well, it's based on a true story. Yeah. He said, I can put you in touch with the FBI agent who went undercover for all these years. So I said, all right. So it's this guy in Detroit named Ned Timmons. And I flew out to Detroit and he starts telling me the story and it seems credible, but I mean, you know, th there's a lot of bullshit out there. And so yeah. what I did is I spent about a year just talking to tracking down all the real people involved, the, the bad guys, the FBI agents, everyone in between and told the story of basically a guy walks into a bar to make a routine arrest and sets <laughs> off a sequence of events that results in the invasion of Panama. Really? I know it was a great story. So, you know, and, and that's great. Uh, uh, now, how did you get into this story? I guess that, that leads the quest begs the question. How'd you get into this story? How'd you find Bob Cooley? How'd you get him to talk to you? And you got another mob guy from Chicago on there. Uh, also, I was curious who that was. Yeah. So well, I ask you a lot of questions. So just start out cool. telling the story. Yeah, yeah. No. So after the first season, we thought, okay, this would be really fun if we could do it again. But, you know, it's not so easy to find a story that has yeah. enough narrative to sustain 10 episodes without kind of being flat. And so quite honestly, we searched for a long time and failed to come up with one. And for a while, I was looking into this other story called Operation Greylord, another Chicago yeah. story about a kind of squeaky clean lawyer who ends up working for the FBI and proposing as a dirty lawyer and out some corruption. But I couldn't quite make it happen. And then along the way, someone said, hey, have you ever talked to this guy named Bob Cooley? He used to be a fixer for the mob, uh, fixed a bunch of high profile cases, including a murder case involving a hitman. And then one day he just walked into a prosecutor's office and flipped and people still can't figure out why he did it. Um, and I said, 
No, that sounds interesting. And then it was kind of like what you said. I did manage to track this guy down. I got him on the phone thinking we'd talk for 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Three hours later, um, you know, he he had this great, it was much the same way with the first season. I was like, this is an incredible story, but how much of it is true? And also, and I'm sure you deal with this, is that often people tell a story when they're telling the story, every single twist and turn, they're the hero. Yeah. And yeah. you're wondering in the back of your head, I wonder what the other guy has to say about <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. you know? And so it was that question that then sends me on this kind of epic journey of interviewing 50 odd people and trying to get these different perspectives on who this guy Bob was and what he did. So, um, you know, that Operation Grey Lord, of course, I think that was Terry Hake was was that guy's name. And, and yes. uh, um, I read that book and, and that Cook County justice system is just, was just uh, rife with corruption. I mean, I don't know, uh, only the poorest people ever felt got justice or felt the, the, the heel of justice grinding down on me. Anybody that knew anything. Right had any money at all. They didn't have to serve any cons, get any consequences for their actions. And so Bob Cooley is during this time, he, he is, you know, he's a gambler. Yeah. And, and so because he's a gambler, he knows all these mob guys. Now did he talk much about, you know, whether how much money he owed these guys and, and his motivation, you know, so I've, I've had people say, you know, his motivation was he beat them. He beat people out of a lot of money. He didn't have to pay once he started uh, working for the FBI and then ended up witness protection. Did he talk much about that? We talked a lot about this, and this is something that I looked into in great depth. So the, the, the rap on the street about Bob Cooley is just as you said, is that he was a gambler. They owed some money to the mob and that he flipped uh, and went to the FBI as a way of getting out of uh, what he owed. As far as I can tell, it's that's just not true. He, he did owe money. That is true. At the moment that he flipped, he owed money. But he was actually able to, um, to get a, one of the mob guys t- on tape saying that he wasn't expected to pay all of the money. Uh, but more importantly, this is the thing that I kept up, I'm coming against. He, after he flipped, he stuck around Chicago for another three years and the mob didn't give him, the the FBI didn't give him any money to pay off those loans. So the way that I came to look at it is if I'm, if if it's me and I owe the mob $150,000 and I flip, I would either pay off those loans, but I I wouldn't stick around town for the three years and not (laughs) pay them off, which is what Bob did. So I don't think I see where that's a tempting explanation to see why he flipped, but it just, I don't think it was true. Um, and I think that the real answer is, is a little more complicated than that. Yeah. But I think that, I, I think that what it really was is that he got drawn into this world of the mob for the reason that people get drawn in for the money and the glamor and for all the, the, the yeah. you know, the high rolling and the, and the diamond rings and et cetera. But basically there's, you, there's a, a price to that or an expectation that when the boss tells you to do something, yeah, you do it. Right. And I think that Cooley got tired of taking orders from this guy. I, and at some point just um, 
flips as a way of kind of getting out from under the boot of them. So I don't think it was the gambling debts per se, but I do think that it was him trying to get out from the boot of this guy, Pat Marcy, who was the guy that controlled the first war, the, the mob's political machine. Right. He was a guy that would sit in that one restaurant right across from the courthouse, uh, uh, Counselor's Row. I mean, That's every right. major city, we have one in Kansas and we had one in Kansas City where all the prosecutors, mob guys, policemen, everybody would go to the judge's chambers, which is right across the street from the courthouse. And and that's where you would have lunch and people would meet each other. And, you know, prosecutors would meet defense attorneys and, and uh, you know, make little deals there, go back over and rubber stamp everything in the afternoon, take the police real fast and get out so you can get a drink early. <laughs> I know about that system. That's that system. <laughs> Yeah. And I think it's hard for people to appreciate, like it was for me, like I, I, I couldn't really wrap my head around it, in, but everyone said the same thing that in Chicago, and I'm sure it was to some extent true in Kansas city as well, that there was this kind of shadow justice system yeah. and you use these fixers and you were, you know, for the mob, the attraction for the mob was it meant that, um, they could operate with impunity, even murder people. And in fact, the first story we tell on the podcast is the story of this mob hitman named Harry Alaman, who murders a guy named Billy Logan. There's two eyewitnesses um, that have identified him. And the mob wants to protect Harry because Harry is, he's their asset. He's this, yeah. you know, he's their hitman. And uh, so Pat Marcy, who's the mob's political boss, uh, approaches Bob Cooley because Bob has developed a reputation as a fixer and says to him, can you find a judge who can handle this case and handle, of course, you know, with a <laughs> yeah. wink, wink. We know what um, that means. <laughs> exactly. And so this is really the origin of Bob's story. At that point, he'd never fixed a murder case. And he sees this as an opportunity for himself because he, he thinks if I can pull this off for Pat Marcy and get this guy, Harry, off, that I'll be the man basically in Chicago because yeah. word will spread that if no matter how tight a pinch you're in, no matter how profile it is, Bob Cooley is the guy that can get you off. So he finds this judge named Frank Wilson, who otherwise has an impeccable reputation as an honest judge. And that's important because if you're going to make this work, you need a judge. It's not going to look like he was bribed. And so what happens though, is as the case heats up, Bob starts to panic that the judge is going to get cold feet and not produce the not guilty verdict that he's been paid to. And the mob has made it clear via Pat Marcy to Bob, hey, if you don't come through for this and the judge doesn't rule the way you say you are, you're on the hook. <laughs> and so actually on the day that the verdict is announced, Bob is in his car heading out of Chicago, driving west <laughs> in anticipation of the potential bad news yeah. of a guilty verdict. And then he hears crackling over the radio, the radio come on and say, uh, Harry Alleman has been, has been acquitted in the murder of Billy oh, Logan. Wow. And he literally U-turns his car around <laughs> and starts heading back into Chicago. And I always thought it was a very cinematic moment. You, the Sears Tower had just been built. You could see the Chicago skyline there. And this guy, Bob, even though he's done a very morally questionable thing, he is now yeah. the fixer in Chicago. And, and that's how he gets his start. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I remember reading about that. I, I did a podcast in, in depth on Harry Aleman and and had, had learned that little tidbit there uh, about how he thought, you know, if this doesn't go, I got to leave town and, and this sigh of relief that he believes. 
So, you know, he was, uh, he was, was, go ahead. What was your take on Harry uh, and what kind of guy he was? <laughs> Harry is one interesting guy. And, and I've seen an interview with his daughter, uh, Frankie Porliano. There was actually kind of a, a documentary out there that where she's in. And uh, well, did you interview her by any chance? I, I did. Yeah, I okay. talked to Frankie for the podcast. I mean, and, and she describes him as like this kind of perfect dad. Yeah. And that's what I was I was finding from a variety of different sources. I went into him as, as much as I could with you know, public records and talking to different people is, is he was, and I've seen that. That's what I always found out interesting about these mob guys is they have this dual existence. You know, they're on one hand at home, they've got these families, they go to their kids, little league games or their concerts, you know, they take part in family things, but then they uh, drive over into the city and they're these gangsters. And then they go back home and they're this dad and uncle and grandpa and whatever, because I've talked to many mob kids and, and grandchildren and and, uh, and people that knew about them, knew the families. And, you know, that home life is just as normal as anybody else's home life, as far as I could tell. So they, uh, you know, and, and, and that's what he did. And that's what his family saw. He loved those kids. It appears to me uh, there was something about that, that he needed in his life. He had a pretty rough growing up himself. His father was, was a pretty bad character and was in penitentiary a lot. Plus beat him is my understanding. And, and so I think he wanted to create that situation that he wished he had when he was a kid. That's that's my take on Harry Ailman and his home life. Yeah, and that's that that's totally dovetails with what his daughter Frankie told me. She said that when when she was sick as a little girl, it was Harry who sat yeah. by her bedside, and you know he's the one that um, cooked the meals for them. And her description of him was was not just like a adequate father; it was a tender and very like compassionate and caring person. And I think for that very reason, she, she still to this day finds it impossible to believe yeah. that he was this other person um, as well. And in fact, I'll tell you a little story that I, it, it pains me that it didn't make it into the podcast uh, because it was one of the best stories I heard. Um, she said years and years later when she was grown up and her father was on his deathbed, he was in prison still and he was dying she said that she went and visited him and she was a devoted daughter. She was yeah. taking care of him and trying to into that. But she said that when he was on his deathbed, she said to him, dad, there's something I have to ask you. Did you kill Billy Logan? And, and to me, I, it was interesting to me that that would be something that was still, even though she, she had this idea of her father as this very kind of gentle and kind person that even as she's dying, you don't have many things you can ask. Yeah. And she asked this and he said, according to Frankie, he swore to her. I did not, I wouldn't yeah. lie to you. I did not. <laughs> um, and, 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 and that seemed to give her some, some peace, but it just, I guess what I'm trying to say here is it, is it, Clearly, it weighed on her this yeah. this other side of her father that she, that she kind of can't escape, um, and um, yeah, uh, interesting. Well, I'll tell you what uh, that dualistic life. I mean, a lot of policemen live like that. <laughs> I've had people tell me, "Oh, you're too nice a guy. You you couldn't be a cop." I said, "You know, you don't know me at work, do you?" When I was telling you to do something you didn't want to do and <laughs> things like that, so yeah. so you know, uh, you know, and that's that's what's fascinating about the mob. They're not just your uh, uh, two bit gangsters, and that's their whole existence is you know drug addict, drug addiction, and and uh, you know just you know having kids and leaving them behind, and and 
you know, that kind of two bit gangster, uh, small time criminal kind of life. These guys were, you know, that's what I always liked working on them. Is they were smart. <laughs> they were, they were a worthy adversaries. I used to always say to me. And, uh, uh, so I, I always loved working to guys and I have a certain, uh, admiration for them. I've gotten to know a couple now in Kansas city and, uh, you know, while we're not, neither one of us are doing our thing anymore and they're pretty good guys, then they can really tell some good stories too. Uh, yeah. It's and, tricky, right? Cause they're like there's like charisma and there's a part <laughs> yeah. of you that feels like <laughs> yeah. I've been in the back of your head, but you're like, but he's oh, yeah. responsible for some pretty terrible things. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like, where do you come out in the balance? There, right. Yeah. Oh yeah. So uh, you had a mobster on there too. They, they called him Nick. The, the part that I heard now, who was that? Or can you well, say, I, I can't, I can't tell you. Okay. <laughs> all right. part of it. Um, all I right. mean, he's, he, I, I promise uh, Nick that, uh, as I call him, Nick the gangster, that I wouldn't okay. use uh, his uh, his full name. Although I did vet his story with court records and whatnot, but okay. he was an enforcer. He was a guy. He said, "How did he say to me?" He said, uh, "Yeah, if if I was collecting on a juice loan, uh, I'd ask you nice the first time, and then I'd use some lingo like, you know, I'll pop your eyes out and eat them like grapes, you know." <laughs> oh, it's- that's it was colorful. pretty convincing. <laughs> um, That's pretty colorful. <laughs> but, but he, what was so interesting? So he, his connection to Bob was, he said these guys knew if you get in some deep shit, um, Bob was your get out of jail free yeah. card. Um, and you understand that what an important role corruption played in these cities for the mob, because yeah. you know it, it was. It, it basically meant that you had your guy and then you could operate with impunity. Um, and in fact, in the, one of the early episodes of the, of the podcast, I interviewed this woman who was an FBI agent and she tells a story from the eighties in Chicago where she goes in and they've got a, they've got a hitman, not Harry, another hitman in custody. And he says to her, she's a young woman. She says, he says, I mean, the effect, you don't get it. Do you yeah, yeah. like, I, I got a lawyer. I pay him. I get off. You, you know, you can't, you literally can't touch me. And she said, you know, that sounds like it's something out of some cheesy TV show, but it's, it, it, it was a hundred percent true. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, that was courtesy of, 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 of this corrupt system. Yeah. I, I interviewed this uh, red woman who was went to witness protection. He worked, he wasn't actually a mob guy. He was what we would call an associate. And he's a little bit like Bob. He just, I think he thought he was going to do the right thing and go to work with the FBI. And, and he turned a bunch of people and I asked him about this whole system. Oh yeah. I said, I had my own judge and I can't remember the guy's name now, but he said he was drunk every afternoon. You had to get him before he got too drunk and, yeah. and, and you just get in there and give him some money. And then when your case came up, it was just dismissed. And, and so there was a lot, a lot of, he talked about two or three other judges that were drunk every time you went in the courtroom later in the afternoon. We had a couple here in Kansas City, too. So, you know, that that whole system was just was rife with corruption. And, and you know, the mob. That's one of the reasons for the demise of the mob, if you look at the big picture in, in the whole United States, is a, the FBI, the, the, the RICO statute and, and wiretaps. They they took and the teamsters they took the teamsters away from them, which generated a ton of political influence for the mob. And but in every major city, they started losing that political influence, and so you can't provide that protection for guys anymore. What's the use of kicking up 
to your mob boss, your little percentage, whatever it is that he demands. If you don't, if they don't have a fixer in there that that uh, can help take care of cases for you, you know, it, it just is part of the the demise of the mob. I say. Mm, that's interesting. That's a that's really interesting. Yeah, the, the the up top they have to provide kind of almost institutional protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't, then what's the point? That's I, I hadn't thought of it exactly that way, but that makes that makes absolute sense to me. And what that also makes sense to me is if you can clamp down on that, which is what you're saying, you know, happened, then then um, no one's as a you know it, they're not as nearly as strong or impervious yeah. to you know as, as they as they would have been. I mean, the thing that's in, the thing that is interesting about Bob is that he, when he walks into that prosecutor's office that day and offers to flip, the thing that really throws the prosecutors for a loop is that they can't figure out why he's done what he's done. He's not, there's no active cases on him whatsoever. He he did owe some money, but it wasn't he he was kind of a gambler, so he was always owing some money. He was right. no in no imminent threat of being killed by the mob. And he he continues operating for the three and a half years. So he's he's clearly not on someone's hit list at the time. And they basically are just scratching their heads saying, Is this guy a mole? Has he lost his mind? Yeah. And but see so what I say at the end is I think that he his gambling debts doesn't explain it, but his gam him being a gambler does because I see his decision to walk into that office that day and flip as the impulsive mindset uh, of a really deep gambler. Yeah, a guy who thinks, well, maybe I'll just like opt out of this life and like get myself in out and screw over these bosses and I'll just walk in that door. I mean, that's not the kind of thought process that someone that is yeah. like a typical rational thinker. To me, that's a 100% gambler move. And then once he does it, he he says, and I believe him. He immediately regrets it. It's like, you know, and and but he's in, at that point, it's done. He's and so he wears this wire for the next three and a half years, and he's you know at when this all comes out down the line, he's branded as as a as a rat, and that's a yeah. whole separate conversation. But I got to tell you, wearing the a wire against mob guys oh. <laughs> for three and a half years, man, that takes some cojones. Yes, it does. Um, you know, you can say what you want about yeah. this guy, but. The number of close calls that he had, yeah. um, that was that was no small thing to do. Yeah, because something always happens with that stuff. And we had a guy once, and it, it starts slipping out of the little little thing that he had there, and, and it started running down his leg. And the mob guy that they were talking to happened to get up and walk away from the table they're in. He kind of shook it out and 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 put his foot on top of it, and then looked around. And when anybody Look, and he reached down, scooped it up, and stuck it in his pocket. It was a tape, small tape recorder, a Niagara tape recorder. So something always goes wrong. It's it's a very scary, dangerous thing to do. I agree. Yeah, no, it it uh, and and yeah, Bob has has a number of close calls like that. Um, <laughs> you know, what was cool too is that I interviewed both of his handlers. He had, he had a, a guy named Steve Bowen, um, who was a former policeman from Indianapolis, mm-hmm. and then a woman named Marie Dyson. And so a lot of these stories that Bob told me about his close calls, I heard, I mean, I was skeptical, but then yeah. I would hear from their perspective. And um, the scariest one was Bob had gone into counselor's row and Pat Marcy, who was the main guy he was after, as he's going in the door, kind of puts his hand around his back to kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. in and puts it right where oh. the recorder is. So Bob's oh, like, yeah. oh shit, basically. <laughs> and then- the guy says, why don't you follow me? 
and they go out into a parking garage. He, he starts leading <laughs> him out to the parking garage. And I interview the handler who's watching this from across the street. Yeah. And he's in this terrible spot because it's like, you're a cop. I mean, you're a policeman. What, what are you doing in that situation? I've been, I've been there. You don't know. Do you, do, you, do you bust it on down and just, you know, to sacrifice the whole investigation to save the witness, your, your person? Or do you take a chance? Mainly you take a chance and they took a chance, didn't they? <laughs> yes, exactly. See, that's why I, I don't think I could do what you, what you did. I mean, he does, Steve does what you did. He, he kind of, he finally gets tired of waiting in the car. He gives it like a few minutes and then he walks in. And as he's walking into the garage, he sees Bob and Marcy walking back out. Yeah. And of course he just walks right past him. Like he doesn't know him. Yeah. So he had kind of, he was almost at that, that <laughs> yeah. tipping point where he's like, this guy's about to get killed and then uh, it passes. And so, yeah. Yes, um, I've, been, I've been there. It is. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a heck of a story. You know, that investigation, the gambling attorney, Gambat is what they called it. And, and gambling was, you know, that was the nexus of the whole thing because that was his relationship with the mob. And, and it is one heck of a story, folks. And, and you really dug in and found you found the agents. You found a mobster who knew Cooley, uh, who had dealt with him, it sounds like. And, and uh, who else did you? What other people did you find? It's well, we obviously we, we interviewed Frankie, who is the daughter of the, the hitman who he helped got off. We also interviewed the daughter of the judge in the famous case. I, mean, oh, I don't want to do too many spoilers here. Yeah, but, okay. Um, yeah, I won't. But the case, the judge that he had bribed had died. And yeah. that is also that that's, his that's death is quite quite dramatic. And that's a story in itself there. Yeah. We won't spoil that one, but that, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a dark tale. Yeah. Um, and I spoke to his daughter and got her perspective and also, you know, what I did that Bob, so Bob had written a book, he'd written a memoir in yeah. which it's all from his perspective. But what I also did is in the two cases, two of the cases that I go deep in, I talked to the people who were the families or directly to the victim where the case was fixed. And I think that you'll start to understand what it looks like to be in a system where, you know, justice is pulled out from under your feet. Yeah. And um, what happened with the hitman case, remember that's the first case that Bob fixes Harry. There's two eyewitnesses that pointed him. The judge is bribed. It comes back with a not guilty verdict. And that miscarriage of justice really tears apart the victim's family for 20 years. They feel like how they knew how it could happen because they knew Chicago's reputation, but it, it left a kind of just a feeling of no closure and no peace yeah. in it. And without giving away too much, what happens is, is 20 years later mm -hmm. um, when Bob flips, he ends up coming public with that. He's fixed the case and they try to retry it. And as you probably, you know, the Harry story well. Oh, yeah, so yeah. what Harry does is he invokes the fifth amendment of the constitution saying, Hey, this is double jeopardy. Y'all yeah. found me, uh, you know, not guilty. You can't try me again. And the, 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 the appeal goes all the way up to the U S Supreme court. And they decide because Harry was never in jeopardy in the first place, because the case appears to have been fixed, he can be retried. It's one of the only times in American history, a guy has tried for the same murder twice. And at that trial, Bob takes the stand and makes public what he's what he's done. And so that's that's a bit of American legal history there. And it's just yeah. super, super dramatic. Yeah, it's a heck of a story. It's uh, uh, 
Yeah, and then there's a lot more to it than just what we said here. There's the witness who went through hell, the eyewitness. Yeah. They had they had the driver of the hit car, uh, and they had the uh, the eyewitness, and he went through hell too. So I, I know you're going to get into all that and, and a lot more in the Chicago outfit and their relationship to the uh, Cook County criminal justice system or criminal injustice system. I think a lot of people thought it back in the day. I had an aunt that moved to Chicago and years ago in the like eight or late seventies. And she said, yeah, she said somebody at the office said, just give them some money and they'll go take care of getting her new driver's license for her. She didn't have to do anything because they had a, had a connection. It was, it was, everybody had their hands out, I think. Yeah. It makes you grateful. I mean, I obviously there is corrupt. It's not, there's still corruption to this day. So yeah, we can't, okay. but n- nothing, it, it appears to me, and you you would know yeah, no, uh, nothing know. on the scale of what it used to no. be. No, and, and nothing like it was in Chicago when Cook County got to, it's just unbelievable. All right. Jake Halpern of uh, Mobland, or correction, Jake Halpern of Deep Cover Mobland. Jake, do a little promo for your podcast and we'll end this off. You look okay, much yeah. better than I do. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. But yeah, it, th- this this story follows a fascinating, kind of morally complicated character who walks off the street of Chicago into a prosecutor's office in 1986 and tells the prosecutor, I can help you bring down the mob. I know all the deepest, darkest secrets, how the cases were fixed. And I know because I'm the guy that fixed them. (laughs) And the prosecutor thinks that this guy is a nut or has a Messiah complex. But as the prosecutor said to me, who am I to say no to the Messiah? And so (laughs) begins this quest that the feds go on with this um, character, Bob Cooley, as he tries to um, expose and take down the legendary Chicago outfit. Well, you know, I can imagine uh, from an insider's standpoint when that U.S. attorney or assistant U.S. attorney uh, called over the FBI to their organized crime task force or their one squad, whatever they called it up there. And they said, you know, I got this guy named Bob Cooley came in. He he wants to flip. They're going, are you shitting me? <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> yeah, right. They, they, they had told me at the FBI they'd been trying to get into Council's Road, Pat Marcy. For right. Oh, yeah. But then, you know, maybe it's like the old saying, sometimes the best plan is a little bit of good luck. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got to be at 90 percent perspiration, 10 percent luck. <laughs> there you go. All right, Jake. Thanks a lot for coming on thanks the show. So, thanks so much for having me on, Gary. All right. Well, folks, that ends a, another Gangland Wire episode. I uh, really appreciate you tuning in and listening. However you listen to it, whether it's on the website or on one of the apps, I also want to express my thanks and sincere appreciation for the kind reviews that you've given me uh, on the app or the Apple app or, or some of the other podcast apps. I don't check them. I used to check them when I first did this. I checked them a lot, but I don't check them anymore so much. Once in a while, I look at them. Uh, sometimes I get, you know, sometimes I get my feelings hurt, especially on YouTube, but that's okay. Uh, if you put yourself out there, you, you better not have a thin skin. I've learned that. Uh, you know, my most recent documentary, I really want to express uh, uh, extra appreciation to the people that stepped up and helped me finance that movie and, and able to increase the production values, uh, hired a professional to do the reenactment scenes and some of the other things and, and got some better music I had to pay for. And 
we have it out now. Now, the last time I did one of these endings for the uh, uh, podcast, I, I had a different title. I changed the title just at the last minute. It's now about theft, burglary, murder, and cover up. So I encourage you to come on the website. I can't get it on Amazon like I have Brothers Against Brothers and Gangland Wire because they changed their rules. And if I can't get a theatrical release like a major film studio or get it in a major film festival, which is kind of like, uh, uh, I don't know what it's like. It's, it's, it's dang near impossible unless you're politically connected to some of the people that run these film festivals. And a guy like me uh, doesn't really have a chance. It's been my experience. I fought that a few years back and, and I gave up. It's, it's too much effort for uh, too little payoff. Uh, but if you want to stream it, it's on my website for $1.99. I figured out a way to do that. And uh, you, you, you pay me $1.99 and I will send you a link to stream it. As well as my other two movies, you want to stream them for $1.99. Of course, I have the DVDs for sale. Or if you make a donation, why uh, I'll give you the DVD and give you a streaming uh, link too. Or a book or Kindle book, whatever you want. Yeah, you guys kind of know the drill by now if you've been listening to it. If not, just go to my donate page. I uh, uh, One last thing, I've kind of uh, dogged off on this PTSD thing. I used to always uh, uh, want to try to promote that. So uh, if you've been listening to podcasts, you know what to do. But uh, if you have any problems with PTSD and you know and you're a veteran, then you know go to the VA. If not, go to the VA website or just Google VA hospital PTSD and they've got a hotline and they've got a lot of resources. And even if you're not a veteran or if you just know a veteran, you can, you can go there and find the resources. If you're not a veteran, you can go there and find resources. So I appreciate all your support over the years and uh, we'll see you again next week or listen to you next week or you'll listen to me. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.